Well, you have your Bibles with you? Yeah? Now would be a good time to take them out. Turn with me to uh, the book of Daniel. Starting a new worship series today. I'm uh, pretty excited about it. I've been thinking about this one for a while. So if you don't know where Daniel is, if you, if you open up your Bible about the middle, you get Psalms, and then you can flip to the right a little bit through Psalms, past Proverbs, right? And then, and then there's uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and you'll, you'll bypass those, and you'll get to, um, you'll go by uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and, you know, Lamentations is in there, and, and you're finally going to get to Daniel, so it's right about here, okay? Um, so open that up, and you can, you know, we're going to be there, we're going to just kind of take a slow walk through Daniel today, um, Daniel is an intriguing book. Uh, it's, it's one of, I think it's one of the most well-loved books in the Old Testament, although some people don't know that a lot of the Bible stories that they remember uh, come from the book of Daniel. And so, um, you know, the stories that we know from, how many of you have been going to church for a long time? It's okay if you haven't, but, you know, if you've been going to church for a long time, like if you're of my vintage, um, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the flannel graph, you remember the flannel graph? It was the, it was the digital, the cutting edge digital technology of like the 70s and before, right? And, um, and so there'd be like a piece of flannel and you'd have these little cutout figures and they would, it's kind of like old time Velcro and you could... You have the characters and move them around, and kids, you don't know how good you have it these days. I mean, this is like, flannel graph is like the PowerPoint of the ancient day, you know? So we could tell these Bible stories. You kids have grown up with all of the, you know, the touch screens and the remote controls and things like that. You know what? When I was a kid, I was the remote control. Hey, kid, go change the channel. You know, and it was one of those, you know, small little TVs, and, you know, we had, like, three channels, right? Channel six, click, click, click. I think we had channel 13, a few more clicks. And then if we wanted to get to PBS and Sesame Street and those kind of things, you had to turn it to the U. Remember that? I'm, getting, I'm dating myself now, right? And then click it around, I don't know, 54 or something like that. Anyway, <clears throat> we remember these stories because we acted them out on the flannel graph, or you've heard them growing up in Sunday school. Some of them have made their way out into our, into our culture. And so, you know, in the book of Daniel, we get stories like Daniel and the lion's den, right? He's thrown into the den of lions, and he's rescued from that. And then Daniel had three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? And, uh, and they got thrown into the fiery furnace, right? And a little bit later in the book, you know, Daniel is this interpreter of dreams and visions, and, and one of the kings uh, of Babylon has this dream, and he sees this, like, disconnected hand writing on the wall, right? And so we get the phrase, you know, the writing's on the wall from right out of, straight out of Daniel. Well, there's a bunch of the stories that we remember from Sunday school class in the book of Daniel, but then Daniel's also kind of odd and mysterious a little bit. Because there's, 
these dreams that he interprets, and there's these visions of the end times. And so the book of Daniel, it's kind of split into two equal parts. Chapters 1 through 6 is very uh, story-oriented. And so, like, each chapter deals with a a different case study, if you will. And uh, they tell stories of how Daniel uh, learns how to live a life of faith in the midst of a pagan culture in in Babylon. And then the second half of the book, uh, chapters 7 through 12, there's like four predominant visions or dreams that that Daniel uh, ends up interpreting. And so, we'll, you know, there's two chunks. Another interesting fact, you may not know this about the book of Daniel, but it's written in two different languages. So, the, you know, the first part of Daniel uh, is written um, in Hebrew. The middle chunk is written in Aramaic, and then it goes back to Hebrew at the end. So, we won't unpack all of that today, but, you know, if you're playing Trivial Pursuit, the Bible version, later on today, you may just get that question, and you can get it right. But we'll talk about more. This is a series that will take us almost to Thanksgiving. So I know that doesn't seem like, I mean, it seems like Thanksgiving is way far off in the future, right? It's not. (laughs) Uh, School is just right around the corner. Parents, cheer. (laughs) Come on. Summer's been long enough, right? Woohoo! No? No? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Uh, Kids didn't even boo. I got to Anyway, um, between uh, now and, oh, mid-November, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. And we'll have some missionary guests. Our district superintendent's going to come down uh, for one week in, in the mix there. And so this series will take us uh, all the way through our uh, fall core group series. So um, I would recommend, you know, if you've never read the book of Daniel open it up and just start slowly reading through it. We're going to try and uh, basically take a chapter a week is, is the plan at this point. But I said uh, the first part of Daniel is this series of stories. They're like um, case studies in practicing your faith in the midst of a culture that ignores it and pushes it to the side and tries to uh, conform you to its ways. Daniel is an example for us on how to, leave, how to lead a life of integrity in our faith and what we believe that calls us to in the midst of uh, adversity that we might face when, when we try and practice that in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, and so forth. And so, you don't feel any pressure from the outside, right, to practice your faith? It's just easy for you, right? No? Okay. Then maybe Daniel has something for us. Um, So, if you have Daniel open, what I wanted to do this morning is just kind of read a few verses and talk about it, and then then read a few more and and talk about them that way. Um, The first two verses of Daniel starts off this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, 
and put in the treasure house of his God. So the first two verses give us a historical background to where these stories start and, and the time period of, of when they take place. And so um, the Babylonian Empire uh, emerged after uh, they had conquered the Assyrian Empire. And uh, Nineveh, you've heard of Nineveh, Jonah, you know, was assigned to go to Nineveh, and um, that was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Babylonians came in after the Assyrians conquered them, and Nineveh finally fell in uh, 612 B.C. And uh, it fell under uh, King Nabopolassar, which is King Nebuchadnezzar's dad. Now, you don't have to, you can read those names. I'll try and pronounce them to the best of my ability. But, um, you'll get used to the names as, as you go along. They're, they're not really names that you find on the top 10 baby name list these days. Um, <clears throat> but King Nebuchadnezzar, he took over for his father uh, in 605. And in the same year, he uh, took his troops and he marched into uh, Judah, which was still independent at the time. The Assyrians had conquered uh, the northern uh, kingdoms of Israel, but, but Judah was still kind of autonomous. And um, they, they, you know, Egypt and the Babylonian and the Assyrians, they kind of just took turns crisscrossing through uh, the Holy Land. Well, 605, Nebuchadnezzar marches in and, and he just uh, lays siege to Jerusalem. Now, he didn't burn it down yet. He didn't destroy the whole city yet, uh, but he came in and he, and he took it over, and he will, he'll come back in 587 and just torch the city, just decimate it, level it, and Jerusalem will uh, come to an end uh, for, for a while. Uh, so King Jehoiakim, he was the ruler of Judah at the time, and his army was no match, no match for Nebuchadnezzar's. I mean, this would be like uh, if, you, if you put a smart car over here and a semi-truck over here and you had them go full speed at each other, what's going to happen? It's not going to go well for the little smart car, right? So Nebuchadnezzar just comes in and, and uh, decimates Jehoiakim and, and his army. And so that begins this process of, of taking people out of Judah and and moving them uh, into Babylon. But what we get in the first two verses is that he came in, he went into the temple of the Lord. And there are uh, dishes and utensils and things that were used in uh, worship of Yahweh, of God. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and he, and he rounded all those up. It's like booty. And he, he took all the precious metals and, you know, these things that were uh, very meaningful in the worship of the Lord. And he took those and he carted them back off to the temple treasury of his own God. Well, you might say, well, big deal, a little bit of a loss. Well, in the ancient times, when one ruler would come out victorious over another, it wasn't just an earthly victory that people looked at. It would have been viewed in the ancient time that Nebuchadnezzar's god, Marduk, beat Yahweh. And so, yes, you know, one, one empire is stronger than another. That's just, you know, the, 
the reality of, of living in the world. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Um, but for those people, it was viewed that Marduk was greater than, than God, and that was a big deal. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes all of this stuff from Yahweh's temple, puts it in his own. It was like an ancient form of, of show and tell. You put it on display and say, I'm greater than, this God is greater than, than this other one. Uh, it's kind, kind of interesting to me. Verse 2 says, and most of your translations will say that, uh, and the Lord delivered um, Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Did you get the language there? The, the language should suggest that, that God gave, okay? So in the way that we look at it, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar took but in reality, it was God gave. Now, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, for hundreds of years had been living outside of the covenant relationship with God. He had rescued them from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. The covenant that they made at Mount Sinai with him was, I'll be your God and, and you will follow my, my law. You'll You'll live how I want you to. You'll live within the boundaries of, of how I think life should be lived. And the people said, okay, they agreed to it. Well, it's one thing to say, yes, I'm going to do that, and another thing altogether to live it out in practice. I mean, we struggle with that all the time in our day and age. So God had said, hey, you need to, you need to be in covenant faithfulness with me. And if you're not, then you know, it's going to catch up with you. And you're going to suffer the consequences of your poor behavior. Well, one of the consequences was the reality of one empire being stronger than another. And the Babylonians come in and they, they take over uh, Judah. And, and so now we see that consequence is, you know, God just kind of maybe stepped back and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to remove some of the protection from around you. I've been warning you about this for hundreds of years. And it hasn't sunk in. So God gave these things. Well, the other thing that's interesting here says that Nebuchadnezzar carried off uh, to the temple of his God in Babylonia. Now, your Bible, some of you may have a translation that says Shinar. You have a Shinar? Anybody have a Shinar in there? Okay, a couple of you. Now, I have a little uh, footnote by Babylonia that takes me down to the bottom of the page and it says the original Hebrew says Shinar. Well, why is that a big deal, Pastor Dave? Well, let me tell you. If you flip back over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, uh, it will jog your memory as to where you've heard that word Shinar before, the plains of Shinar, in early civilizations. And uh, you'll recall hearing about something called the Tower of Babel. Does that ring a bell? When people had come together and, and they, were, they would make these ziggurats. And do you know what a ziggurat is? Um, a ziggurat is a staircase into the heavens so that the gods could come down the staircase and accept the gifts of the worshipers. And in Genesis chapter 11, the people had come together and they were going to build one of these ziggurats, uh, staircases for the gods. Well, you would think if this was something for worship that it would be totally about 
about the God. Well, in Genesis chapter 11, it says that the people did this for their own glory. We're going to make a name for ourselves. This was uh, a, uh, a building that they put up for purely selfish pride and, and personal gain. And, <clears throat> and so they built this huge tower. And Genesis 11 says that, that Yahweh, God, actually came down. And he's looking at, I wonder if he used their tiny little staircase. Okay. Yeah, this is nice. Tiny little staircase. And God recognized what they were doing. He said, this is totally against what I set this in motion to be. Something for praise and honor and glory of my name. I created all of this and I put you in it. To lead, all of my creation is to lead you to me. And these people had turned to pride and selfishness and, and all of those things and, and put up this tower. And, and God said, you know what? Uh, he, he confused their language and that scattered them around the face of the earth. So to me, when we read the first two verses of Daniel, we're already getting this foreshadowing of how some of the events of the book are going to play out. And so at the very beginning, it appears like Nebuchadnezzar has won. Like he has just come in and he's taken over and he's lifted all of this treasure from, from uh, the temple in Jerusalem and he's deposited it over here in, in Babylonia and you know what, I, I win. My God's greater than your God. But the language that Daniel chooses to put in the text is, no, not so fast. God gave this to you and you ran off back to Shinar. And what you did purely out of selfish gain to... to uh, improve your place in this world, to uh, exert your dominance, if you will. It's like a tiny little staircase, and God's going to come, and He's going to dismantle it at some point in the future. We're already getting that hint of a foreshadow. Well, the story kind of goes on, and uh, <clears throat> part of that process is uh, Nebuchadnezzar began deporting people as well. Not just the treasures of the temple, but he starts taking people into exile. Now, if we think about Babylon, and we'll get a better picture of Babylon as we go through the series, but in short, Babylon was this gorgeous, beautiful city right on the Euphrates River. In fact, the city was built on two sides of the Euphrates River, and, and part of the river actually went through the city. Um, it was a place that was known for art and um, magnificent architecture, extravagant temples, and uh, ornate palaces, and they had a, they also built a huge ziggurat uh, in, in their town. And it was said, I think, I think I read it was something like 650 feet tall, and that's pretty good feet for, for those ancients. And um, it was a place of, Babylon was a place of uh, entertainment, it was a center of commerce. Uh, if you want to, you know, you could use whatever big city uh, in our uh, land that you would, maybe a New York kind of a place or a Los Angeles or uh, maybe a Las Vegas kind of a place where you know, people are just crossing paths all the time. And, and um, it's just a desirable place. The other thing that you need to know about Babylon, the other thing that we need to recognize up front, is that Babylon is representative uh, 
of everything that is anti-God. So when we think about Babylon, you can kind of typecast Babylon into things that are just anti-God. And so later in the book, when we get to dreams and visions, um, you know, Babylon represents anti-Christ. So here we are, week one, and I already mentioned antichrist. That's, you know, um, it's going to be a good series, right? Uh, lots of intrigue. Uh, Babylon was rich, glamorous, seductive, uh, posed as the image of the beautiful life. It was desirable. It was intoxicating. Uh, there was an excessive celebration of self, of human ingenuity, uh, of achievement, of self-centeredness. I'm not going to draw an equal parallel between Babylon and and our country, but there's certainly parallels. There's certainly some things, some dots that we can connect. Um, Babylon, with all of those things, was lifeless and fake. Babylon was just simply a poser. Um, Like the devil, Babylon masqueraded around as an angel of light. And it could be said that there weren't many people that could resist the charm of of Babylon. People wanted to be there. When you were there, it was hard not to be assimilated uh, into the way that they did things. It's kind of like the Borg of the ancient world, you know, you will be assimilated, no choice. You kind of go in, and it just has that allure about it, and wow, this is awesome. Well, not many people could stand up against her seduction. Uh, It was hard for a young Jewish person, or any Jewish person for that matter, to remain faithful to God in the midst of a place like this. So here's where some of the parallels uh, are relevant for us. There are things and ways in our culture that are hard to resist. We get caught up in the, uh, the ways of the world, and we see people of faith or not of faith who are uh, successful in following the ways of the world to gain riches and glory and fame and, and all of these other sorts of things, and it's hard to resist sometimes. That's Babylon. Daniel goes on, verses, uh, starting back to verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. I think his friends probably called him Ash. I mean, can you, can you imagine having the name Ashpenaz on the playground in third grade? He had to have been called Ash. He was the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's court officials. And he was assigned to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. 
They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. So we're introduced to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So as part of Nebuchadnezzar's, I mean, he's a strategic thinker. I mean, this guy is smart, knew what he was doing. Part of his plan when they would go and they would conquer these foreign lands, not only would they come in and destroy the people's present, you know, just take away everything they had, move them around, but he also had this program where he would take away their future too. And he would go in and he would find their best young leaders and he would cart them off and he would train them to be leaders in his own land. And so if there was any hope of restoration back in this land, well, you know what? I've already taken your best, the best of your human capital and I've, and I've kidnapped it and I've taken it over here. So you can fend for whatever you have here, but I'm taking away your future too. So this is Nebuchadnezzar's plan. Uh, he takes these boys and he puts them into Babylonian boot camp. And uh, Ashpenaz, uh, Ash, he, he's this official in, in Neb's court and he's kind of like a... He's kind of like a college recruiter, sports recruiter, uh, uh, a corporate headhunter, if you will. And his job is to, to go in and, and look for the, the best and the brightest. So he's looking for those who are voted most likely to, to succeed. I mean, he was in Centralia looking over the top 10 you know, publications, and, and he's got everybody's SAT scores, and he's got them all filtered out, and he's going for the top. You know, this is, if he's looking at sports, he's looking for state championships, he's looking for strength and speed. <clears throat> if he's looking in, into the business world, he's looking for those who are uh, emerging leaders and uh, the leadership uh, potential of, of people. I, I remember when, when, uh, when I had my Xerox company, one of my competitors, uh, downtown Chicago office location, they had a, they had a corporate recruiter. And, and I would get a call like every two or three months, hey, you ever think about switching? Once in a while, I'm like, sure, what do you got? Uh, let's hear. Now, one time, I, like, it, a friend of mine had succumbed to the pressure of this other company downtown and called me up and said, hey, you should come check this out. I'm like, all right, I'll honor the relationship with my friend. So I went downtown and Wow, it was pretty amazing. Downtown high-rise office, and it was, it was pretty neat. And, but they were pretty persistent, and they were looking for those who were successful in the industry already. That's what Ashpenaz was doing. He's going into Judah, and he's looking for the best kids that they can take out of, pluck out of this land and put over here in Babylon and train them up in the ways of Babylon, and so at some point they can be future leaders in this empire over here. That's Neb's strategy, strategy and it's a good one. So, he identifies Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as uh, Judah's finest four. And these boys, you know, just if you're curious, they're probably somewhere in the 12 to 15-year-old range. So, these are young, young boys, impressionable, you know. And he takes them from Judah, and he just uprooted 1,000 miles 
planted down here in Babylon now. 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. I mean, they're still getting a grasp of what it meant to live. I mean, the questions on, you know, in that age group is, who am I? They're trying to figure themselves out yet. Teenage boys, you know, starting to get the little peach fuzz and, and you know, voice changes and, and all of those. They're trying to figure that out. And, and, and Babylon comes in and says, hey, you're coming over here. Puts them down into this massive city and begins this boot camp, this enculturation process. Now, I, I've moved several times in my life, uh, and I kind of know how it goes. There, there is this assimilation process. You, you land in a new place, and you know, people talk to you, and, hey, you're going you're gonna to think like us and act like us and, you know, try this cuisine. It's the best, you know. Cheer for our sports team. No, thank you. Um, <clears throat> what? <laughs> what? It... Oh, well. Um, I'll mark that one off. I won't do that one again until next week. Um, these boys were taken out of homeland, put into a place that was totally foreign. It would be like, how many have ever driven through like Amish country? Pretty quaint. Um, my in-laws live, lived on a road in Augusta, Wisconsin. And most of the families on that road were Amish. So whenever we would go back to visit, I could sit in the living room, and it was really cool in the wintertime, sit in the living room, look out the big picture window uh, in, in, the, in the house, and, and most of the traffic that's going up and down County M was horse and buggy traffic. The sleighs, and, and there's a pond across the street, and, and the Amish kids would gather, and they would ice skate. and I mean, it just it takes you back to another time. Well, you know what? Once in a while, they would need to go into town, uh, into the big city. And so, even though it was only a few miles away, they were plucked out of their environment, and they're put into the middle of, like, Walmart. I mean, well, how do you deal with that? Um, there's all sorts of th- ways that you can imagine what it's like to be plucked out of one environment and dropped into another. Now, for Daniel and his friends, they're never going back. So it's intensified. Well, part of the process is, um, you know, you're going to, we're going to strip you of your identity. We're going to take your name away. The names that you have that were uh, given to you in honor of your God, Yahweh, we're going to take that name away and we're going to give you one that honors uh, one of our pagan gods. Strip, strip their name identity away. They were enrolled in uh, the University of Babylon and, and they, were, um, they were put into classes to learn the language and that probably included uh, Aramaic and another language that was spoken in the realm was Akkadian. Um, and they were entered into the literature 101 classes and, and all of these classes were designed to take whatever thinking they had um, learned over here and, and we're, we're going to make you think like us. You're going to go through our education and so we're going to brainwash you with all of these things. And so, so you're going to have our names and you're going to begin to think like we think. And then um, 
you know, the king just kind of wined and dined them. They were overwhelmed with the riches and the opportunity of Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar, what he wants to do is, these are 12 to 15-year-old, very impressionable young men, and he's going to overwhelm them with the riches, and they're going to go, wow, I could have all this and the great job. I mean, it's like the American dream, only the ancient version. We get all these promises in our culture that if you do this, 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 and this in just the right way like we do it, you too could have success like this. You too could have wealth like we do. You too could have fame and notoriety and all of these things like we do if you sell yourself out and if you conform to our way of doing it. So we read that, that they're given food from the king's table. See, the king wants to feed the boys because he knows that if you shape the appetite, you eventually control the person. Smart guy. Impress them with the riches of the king. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make sure that they spoke like him, thought like him, ate like him, behaved like him, believed what he believed, and it was intentional, and it was strategic, and it normally worked. And, you know, the devil's after you for the very same things. He wants you to think like he thinks. He wants you to think like the world thinks. He wants you to believe everything that the world believes. He wants you to eat and drink and party like the world does. He wants all of what the world has. He wants for you, and that's his game. And he fools you into believing that that's the way to success and to fulfillment in life. And then we get to verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, that's a big but. All of that stuff, all of Babylon, all of Babylon, all of what it has to offer, is that, I mean, at the fingertips of these boys, and Daniel, and, and we're reported that, but Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So uh, this person says no. Nice try. I feel compassion in my heart for you. I understand your thinking and why you would do that, but no, because I fear for my life. If I don't do what the king says, I mean, I'm, he's, this guy's already brainwashed. He's already part of the system. He says no to Daniel. But Daniel uh, then said, he went to another person. He went around this guy. Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So the guard agreed to this and tested them for ten days. He didn't want to eat, Daniel didn't want to eat the king's food. Uh, it's interesting to me that he didn't resist on any other point of this enculturation process. 
He didn't push back on the education, the language classes, the literature. He didn't say that he pushed back on, you know, his living accommodations. Um, throughout the book of Daniel, he, his name is interchangeable. It didn't, we don't have record that he pushed back on, no, I don't want that name. Call me Daniel. I don't want to be called Belteshazzar. I wouldn't either. Um, he doesn't push back on those things. What he, where he draws the line is the king's food. Now, the problem could have been that the food was dedicated and sacrificed to the pagan gods, but the vegetables that he asked for would have gone through the same process. So, you know, we're not really quite certain. There, there really wasn't... Uh, there wasn't any logical reason that, that, that we know of that the Bible gives us, which is okay, but Daniel drew a line in the sand. He said, I don't want the king's food. Uh, this was what would mark him out. This is what would keep his head and keep his heart in allegiance uh, with Yahweh God. This is where he would find and remember that his identity comes from God. When, when he would eat the vegetables and, and drink the water instead of the Babylonian beef and wine, it doesn't say beef, but I'm, you know, that just sounds good, right? So I'm going to push the Babylonian food over here, and every time I eat these vegetables and, and, and drink this water, I am reminded whose I am. That's how he kept his head and his heart in the game. So maybe what's important is that you draw the line somewhere that you have to avoid the defiling effect of a culture that worships different gods than we do. He knew that to have his appetite governed by the king was to, be, to become, in essence, dependent upon the king. And he said no. So Daniel had resolved. Now, how do you do that? Let's talk about how you do that. How was he able to, to do that? Did you notice that he decided before this was like a predetermined uh, answer, course of action. If the food had made it to his plate, he may have been tempted. He may have, you know, with his buddies, like, hey, you know what? I guess we're in Babylon. We do what the Babylonians do, and let's just eat this good food, and, and all will be good. You know, nobody's really watching right now, and you know what? It must be okay, because everybody's doing You know, whatever it is, you justify or rationalize it. We do the same thing. We get with our friends, and they're tempting us to do things that maybe in the back of our mind, we're like, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this, but oh, you know what? Everybody else is doing it, so I might as well just go along with the crowd. Daniel predetermined, oh, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to decide ahead of time on what I will do and what I, uh, what I won't do. He had resolved in his heart not to eat the king's food, and he drew up this plan, and he presented it to, to the, you know, the court official, and the court official says, no, and well, I'm resolved to not eat the king's food. So he goes around that person, and he finds the guard, and he's able to convince the guard to carry that food away. Of course, if I'm the guard, too, I'm taking that food. I mean, I can eat the king's food. I mean, bring it home to my family. Look at, hey, honey, look what I got today. I, I replaced it with some vegetables for these guys over here who... Anyway, Daniel had resolved in his heart that he would not eat the king's food, and that's what would, dis, would be the mark of distinction to keep him separate from, from that culture in just some way. He drew the line somewhere. And you know what? You can decide ahead of time. And there's, you can decide what you 
won't do. You can decide on things that when you get into a situation, you know that you've already drawn a line of distinction. You've already drawn a line in, in your thought process that when I get into this situation, I will not do this. Well, what does that look like? You can decide right now not to participate in gossip at the office tomorrow, right? You can decide not to participate in those negative conversations, including the ones that happen online. You can decide that the next time you go to that party where everybody's drinking and getting drunk and it's just a free-for-all, that you're not going to drink. You can decide that when you go home tonight and you're surfing the web late at night and nobody's looking and that little flashing website comes up over here, you can decide not to click on that porn site. You can decide right now that you will not do that. You can decide that when you get into a situation with a significant other that you are not going to have sex outside of God's covenant faithful relationship that he calls us to. You can decide these things now. You can decide that the next time you're in the office or at school and there's an opportunity to cheat, that you could get ahead of all of your peers by just taking a shortcut. You can decide right now this morning that when that opportunity presents itself that you're not going to take it. That's a big one in our culture today. With everything that's at stake promotions, uh, grades, all of these things. Uh, people cheat because it pays to cheat. But you can decide right now that you're not going to go there. And so when the opportunity presents itself, you've already made the decision. And when you get to that point, you can say, you know what, I'm, that's holding me distinctive over and above the culture that's telling me it's okay. And you know what, the culture is telling you that it's okay on all of these things. The culture is saying, and, and Paul talked to the Corinthian church about this, the, the culture says, I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. The culture says, I have the right to do anything. Paul says, it's not all constructive, and I'm not going to be mastered by anything. There are things that are out there that are legal, that are, that are affirmed and blessed by the culture, that are just they're not good for you. And just because it might be okay for you to do such things doesn't mean it's good for you. So you can decide things that you won't do. But there's also another side to that coin. There, there's decisions that you can make right now of, of, of ways that you will behave, things that you will do when you are confronted. You can, you can make, you can resolve, and parents, you're going to say amen right here. Uh, kids, you can resolve right now Every time you get out of bed in the morning, you're going to make your bed right away. You can decide that right now. All of us, you know, we all have a good intention to go to the gym and exercise or get out for a walk or, you know, do whatever it is to stay healthy and fit. You know, when your alarm goes off at 5 in the morning, you can decide right now that you're not going to hit snooze, that you're going to get out of bed and you're going to actually do what you set out your plan to be for the day, right? You can decide to read your Bible pray every day. I talk to so many people who just don't get around to reading the Bible, who don't spend time in prayer because their schedules are full. You know what? Think about the time you spend on social media. Could you sacrifice a half an hour, of that, an hour of that on a daily basis to spend time in the Word and in prayer? 
You can decide to do that right now. Things you will do. You can decide to go to church somehow, some way, every week. That's not a popular thing in our culture these days. Most people, the the average church attendance now is down about 1.5, 1.7 Sundays out of a month. You can decide right now that that being in worship and being in the Word is a priority in your life and for your family, that you teach your kids that this is how you go about life. This is how you stay connected to God. You can decide it right now. So if you're in town, you go to church. If you're out of town or away, that's fine. We all need to get away, and there are Sundays that things come up and the alarm doesn't go off. I I get it. There's schedules, and, and, and I understand the pressures of our culture. But you can decide today, right now, that worship is going to be a priority in your life. And you're going to go. If you're in town, you go. If you're out of town or something comes up, you know, we publish everything that we do online. You can interact with it outside of a Sunday morning. There are ways that you can stay connected to worship and the Word uh, in the context of, of public worship, even if you miss on a Sunday. You can decide to remain sexually pure. You can decide to serve other people. You can decide that you are going to stand up for people who are on the fringes who don't have a voice of their own. Those are all things that you can decide. There's things that you can decide that, you know, when I get into this situation, I'm not going to do it. I'm drawing the line. And there are, there are other things that you can decide right now that, you know, when I'm confronted with this situation, I'm in. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm committing to it. And you know what? When you make those decisions, you got to tell somebody else about it. Because somebody else will then hold you in a relationship of accountability. That's why we do core groups. That's why we encourage people to not just show up for church on Sunday morning, but to connect, find a place to belong where there's other people who are checking in on you and, and making sure that the commitments that you make with your words are things that actually funnel down to your feet, that you're doing them. All right, I know I'm getting kind of carried away. Um, I'm passionate about this stuff, and I think it makes a difference in our lives. Da- Daniel had resolved in his heart. He predetermined that he, what he would do. And, and when you make these kinds of decisions and it changes the way that you act, people outside your family, your coworkers, your people you go to school with, they're, they're going to notice that you're making different choices than they do. They're going to notice that maybe you're making different choices than you did yesterday or, or the week before. And you know what? When they ask you about it, that's an open, opportune time for you to witness. Let me tell you about this person who has affected my life so much so that I've changed the way that I think and act and live and care and love. Hmm. When you draw a line in the right way, when you draw a line at the right time for the right purposes, it can change the course and the direction of your life and open up these opportunities for witness. Conversely, on the other side of that coin, uh, in a negative sense, if when you compromise on the decisions you've made, when you compromise on the values you hold, 
when you compromise on the wrong things at the wrong time, in the wrong ways, and people watch that, uh, it can even, it'll diminish and even negate any witness that you've ever had. Because people will start to label you hypocrite. And in some ways, you know, we, we all fit that category. But we need, we need to be cognizant of that. We need to pay attention to those things. This game is, life is, is way bigger than just us with our little blinders on. The way you think and act and what you believe and what you say and how you say it, you know, when people know that you are a follower of Christ, they're always attaching what you do and how you do it to what it means to be a Christ follower. I've said it from this pulpit, I don't know how many times, the, the best witness, the, the best uh, example of what it means to be a Christian is to, to look at Christians themselves and, and, and all of the good that we do out in society. But, but at the same time, the answer to the other question is, what's the worst thing? What's the worst um, witness? Is also, the answer is also Christians. Because people look at what we say and, and then they evaluate it over and against what we do and, it, and they totally want to write off Jesus because what we're doing and saying don't match. And Daniel says, in the midst of all that adversity, out in culture, you can stand strong in your faith and you can be a powerful witness because look, look how it ends up. The plan worked. God blessed the boys with knowledge and understanding and, and wisdom beyond their years. And when they got before the king, the king noticed that these four boys were ten times better than anything that Babylon had to offer. God was with them because they were willing to draw a line and they were willing to act on the line that they had drawn and align their faith with their practice, even in the midst of a culture that was creating adverse conditions for them by constantly pressuring them to conform, 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 conform. Do it how we do it. Think like we think. It's okay. Everybody's doing it. It's not okay. It's just not. Daniel draws a line. He sees what King Nebuchadnezzar and the empire are up to. When, when you, do you see it? Do you, when you look out at society, when, when you enter the world as you leave you know, church and your home every day, do, do you feel that seductive force just trying to influence you? There's voices that, are, that get inside our head calling you to the world standard. It's okay. I look around at the culture of Christianity, particularly in North America, particularly the United States, and I, I often wonder if we have, if we're just too assimilated to what goes on around us. Like we've allowed the church just to bend, you know, well, this has got to be okay because the world says it's okay. And so as a corporate body, the church has just drifted. The church has in some ways refused to draw a line and say, you know what, that's not what we're about. And I think that we allow it to drift like that because we're afraid of the consequences. Jesus never said that it would be easy 
to be one of, in fact, he said it would be the hardest thing you do in your life. Where you go, I'll go. Whom you serve, I'll serve. How, how you serve, I'll serve. Whom you love, I'll love. What was that last line? If my life I lose, we don't want to lose our life. And so in the face of all of this pressure to conform, I think we've let the church drift because we, we fear that consequence. I don't know what the line is for you. I don't know, you know what's go- exactly going on in your life and where you feel the most pressure. But would you be willing to draw some lines? Say, you know what? I, I need to take a stand. I, I need to set this apart, and I'm not going to cross that line no matter what. Because I need to keep my head and my heart in the game. I, I need to make sure that I remember that my identity is in Jesus Christ and not in the world and what it would have for me. And I know that that means risk. I know there's sacrifices that we have to make for that. You might have to give up something that costs you a promotion, a spot on the sports team, whatever it is. I love how this story ends. Verse 21. We read way too fast over this verse. It says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Doesn't sound like much is going on there, right? Wrong. That's over 60 years. Think about that. That's over six decades. What Nebuchadnezzar had done for his personal gain to benefit his kingdom, to benefit himself which harmed, you know, these boys over here by moving them, God used for good. Sixty years, Daniel and his friends were a witness in this pagan and foreign land. Multiple times throughout Daniel, we will read that the kings themselves would acknowledge God, Yahweh, and worship Him. Not exclusively, but they would acknowledge that He exists and that He is powerful. It brings me back to a story that Jesus told, and we'll close with this. The end of the Sermon on the Mount. He ends by talking about the, the wise one who built their house on the rock, right? The winds of adversity came. The rain just crashed down on them. I mean, it was a brutal storm. The pressures of the world came in on them. The house... It was built by the wise person on the rock. What, what happened to it? Stood firm, right? There's another person labeled as foolish who just did everything quickly for their own personal gain. Hey, I want the beachfront property. I want the best. I got to be close to the water. And so they built their house on the sand. The same storm came. They're faced with the same pressures. What happened to that house? Nebuchadnezzar built his life, his kingdom, his empire, his friendships, his relationships, everything. He built it right there on the choice property, the beachfront right here, and it was all on sand. He's a foolish guy. 
And in the end, when the waves and the wind uh, and the rain of the world pressed in on him, it, he was decimated. His kingdom didn't last. But Daniel, wise, who was willing to draw that line and willing to stand up for God and, and stand up in his faith, even though he knew there was a risk of potentially even losing his own life, God blessed him for that. And in the end, his house that he built on God's wisdom outlasted the king, outlasted the empire, and well into the next regime that was there as God's witness. See, Jesus tells us, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The people of God said, amen, amen. Would you stand for prayer?